Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Animal Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Callie Smith, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Sharon Patricia Holland about her new book, Anne Other, A Black Feminist Consideration of Animal Life. In this book, Holland tracks the question, what happens when Black people do things with animals? Her discussion includes her own experiences as an equestrian and a range of sources by Charles Burnett, Toni Morrison, Hortons J. Spillers, Audre Lorde, among others. Holland's writing is intuitive, guiding, and gentle. She writes with the care needed to hold reins, to press one's calves against a horse's flank. In this important work, Holland gives us a model for a Black feminist, anti-racist reading of human-animal relationships. Dr. Holland, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Callie. Thank you for that generous and beautiful introduction, too. Um, yes, it is kind of like riding a horse, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And um, it's the, the cover of the book, too, is, I think, a really beautiful uh, representation of kind of the spirit of your research, where you have this young girl and the reins have just, you know, fallen over the front of the horse and she's looking right at the viewer and they just seem to be having a really lovely moment. Um, so I loved every time I returned to the text, that being kind of the cover image that we start with. Um, yeah. yeah, I was really lucky to have it. My friend Judy Raphael is an amazing artist and um, found basically told me, I have something I think you might want. <laughs> oh, that's artists as friends. That's wonderful. That's yes. really special. Yes. Um, so I thought, you know, what better way to begin this conversation than with you bringing some of the writing into the space? And um, what you're about to read from us, you say, is really kind of that pivotal moment where what was the book project, right? Vocabularies of vulnerability uh, really shifted with this particular experience. So um, I would love to hear you read um, apart from the opening section of the book. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the opening section, um, there is one kind of preface, uh, how to read this book. Um, and this comes after that. Um, and it's entitled Primer, What the Animal Said. So there's a quote from Job here, of course. Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? Accident. How dare I write to you about accident before love? The autocorrect for oxycodone is oxymoron. I will have to tell my tell friends that my trouble is not a literary one. The ground comes up quickly below me, and I am not stunned, but indignant. Fuckity fuck fuck. Am I really going down? Where is he? How far to my right? Will my outstretched leg catch his panicked hindquarter? This could end very badly, I think. But before I hit the ground, I make a calculated risk, triangulate the vectors, and decide to trust, to trust and twist my body toward the horse. Avoiding the faceplant and head injury, I choose my left shoulder, am lucky to choose. Black Hawk down, Black Hawk down. I spring up in the corner of my eye. I see the foamy back end of PD, all 16 hands moving away from me at a long stride canter and a few bucks thrown in for good measure or for scorn. I cannot say because he is not mine and at this point will never be. Nevertheless, I notice the sheen of his coat and mourn for our fleeting partnership. What happened? An oxymoron, up down, slowly faster, unseated rider. I get up so fast that my trainer cheers. I turn to her after seeing Petey galloping down the far fence line and I raise my right arm for the thumbs up. When I go to lift my left arm, something between brain and shoulder breaks down. I point to the general region of my collarbone and shake my head. Her voice begins to come from far away. 
I am broken, getting high on my own personal stash of endogenous morphine. Help. To Morristown Regional Hospital for the verdict, I am indeed broken, a wing that cannot be fixed without incident. My x-ray is a vision of small bones shattering like glass. I need to see a specialist. I hear the soundtrack to the bionic woman playing in my head. I will finally get to meet Lindsay Wagner. I smile. The Demerol begins to make me drool. I tell my trainer that I love her, really. And the nurse too. And the little boy by the front desk who stares at me in wide-eyed panic, clutching his mother for dear life against the woman with the shredded shirt and paper bag of hydrocodone and the mud stains down the left side of her riding pants. I will have surgery in five days. In the interim, I teach my summer class in a sling, cook dinner for a friend, reminding myself not to move my left wing that little half inch to the right. I forego all attempts to read as I have the attention span of a 12-year-old. I am pleased that my masturbating hand is still good. My left eye now possesses a horse's vision. I see my enemies from two separate flanks and rapid movements make me rear. Recipe for repair of a shattered wing. Do I want a long pin or screws in a plate? The latter. Do I have people who can be with me before, during, and after surgery? Absolutely. Am I allergic to any medications? What? Do I intend to ride again? Yes. Am I insane? Probably. My surgeon comes in and with military precision, he marks the spot where the incision will go, noting the fall of my undershirt. He wants to make his mark, but not leave it. My sister flies down from Boston with my nieces in tow. The Facebook post from the oldest reads, my crazy auntie got bucked from a horse and we have to go take care of her. None of us are actually related by blood. We are blood strangers. 24 hours after surgery, they walk into my bedroom with the quiet hum of the ice machine circulating, pumping what is now lukewarm water to the wrap under my arm and around my bandaged incision. Use of this device cuts down by 50% both pain and swelling after surgery. I am a mess of sheets and blankets in the apathy of anesthesia ringed by a halo of oxycodone. They are worried. How many did you take? No, really. Shite. I am a purist and unused to narcotics. The youngest climbs onto the bed, dragging along her father's iPad. She knows what to do, and the rest follow until we become a collection of MAC products fanned out among the bed linens along with the limbs of the dogs enjoying our togetherness in a haze of cyber love. During my month-long rehab, I read the online reports from the rib x-rays and find that they do not describe anyone I know. Impression. Number one, the cardiac silhouette is unremarkable for the patient's age. Number two, no acute abnormalities, abnormalities in the lungs. Number three, mild scoliosis, love. My oxycodone dreams are vivid and reek of horse flesh. I no longer recognize my silhouette. Something has happened to me from my own, of my own accord. I am now metal, severed nerve, and organic matter. A year later, I circle, urge Annie on, kicking just before the jump cycle to get her up and over. We leave the ground together. This might be what love is. Sarah with joy. Thank you so much. Okay. Oh my goodness. I, I've heard this, like I read this section a few times then I've heard you read it in other settings. And um, I'm so struck by how your body becomes part thing, part animal, part collection of the visitors. Um, even like the language changes too. Like I love that moment where you read your niece's Facebook post about my crazy aunt fell off a you know, got bucked off a horse. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the many ways in which this not only changed you physically, um, but also the spirit of this project? Yes. Um, again, as you said, uh, I was working on a project called, you know, Vocabularies of Vulnerability. And, you know, I was interested as so many scholars were during that time. I mean, this book has been kind of, you know, a decade long, you know, research project. Most of my projects take about six years, but I start them, of course, when I'm when I'm finishing others. But I've been really working on this project probably 20 years on and off. And halfway through, um, you know, I, I was starting with uh, words like precarity, um, flesh, etc. And then 
when I fell from the horse, I began to understand one thing and I could hear my mother's voice at that moment. I think she was not, she was still alive then, you know, that was your own fault, Sharon P. Holland. Right. And so I began to think of the kinds of vulnerabilities that are chosen by black people that are chosen by so many of us, and especially vulnerability and openness to non-human animal life. And the book took a radical turn. I began to look for relation. Um, I think I was in the in the in the in the hold of uh, or in the grip of uh, ontological proofs. Right, the ontology says we are a certain thing, and therefore, you know, I'm going to. I, I might argue with it, but it still holds. And I wanted to eschew arguing with the with ontological with ontology or taking it up. Um, and I wanted to think about relation because I do believe that there's some questions left over from enslavement about relation that are more ethical questions that I find more interesting for the work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I love that. And it seems like kind of what you're saying, moving away from seeking out like definitions and more towards that experience of relationships mm-hmm. in a way. And I think I had heard you talk about, because there's two horses that really feature uh, in this text, and that's Petey, who we just heard about. And then there's Annie, um, who I think is your uh, companion currently. Yes, yes. Um, and I My think longtime I, companion. <laughs> oh, I love that. And I think I heard you say, like, with Petey, you know, he was part, you know, dressage, part Western horse, didn't really know who he was. Um, and that it, it cut you both started off kind of not in, um, in sync with each other. And this this accident came from him being startled by something. And then from there, it was this just series of tumbles. Yes, yes, it was um, his great jumper. He was a lot of fun. You know, Um, I think I was, you know, the thing about horse, I don't know what's up with horse folks, but it seems that every time like when I used to show, you know, we'd spend the entire drive talking about all the most like horrific like horse accidents we'd ever seen or, you know, had ever happened to us and, you know, how many times we got broken. And I think that was just a way to deal with the nervousness. You know, it's a lot to take a very large animal to partner with a very large being and trust them. Mm-hmm. Because once you hit the air, you're not looking at where you're going, the horses. And so you're both doing work for one another. And, you know, with Petey, um, you know, he didn't know who he was. And, you know, the thing is, is trust your intuition. I was basically, you know, put my hand on him. I was just like, easy boy, you know, let's just, let's just do this. But we also, you know, my friends and I were laughing and we're like, you know, why do we always go for that last little bit? You know, the runner, all athletes and the runner says, I'm just going to do a couple more blocks. You get injured. You know, um, the, the thing you learn as a rider very quickly is when you have a good cycle with a horse, even if you have 10 minutes on your lesson or five or even 15, sometimes you're like, you know, that's it. Mm-hmm. I've reached a really good point. You know, we have done the the thing we wanted to do together. Um, riding has taught me when to stop, mm-hmm. when to feel the sweet spot. And it's human being that wants to replicate it right away. Mm-hmm. It's human being that wants to move in a particular way. Um, and maybe that's toward mastery or perfection. And so, you know, when I think about getting thrown from PD, I'd already decided I didn't want him. And guess what? He knew it. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a possibility in those first couple runs, but by the time we got to that last one, that was just for shits and giggles, as they say. <laughs> and then he was just like, you know, here's what I feel about, like, you're just hanging out with me when you're not really interested in me. Mm-hmm. When when you were talking, it reminded me of a quote that appears throughout your text, and that's by Derrida about politics supposes livestock, and you have these wonderful moments about the farmer's market and, and how we manage um, food or how we attempt to manage like life through that larger system. And what you were saying about PD in a way, it's, it's very different, but like, you know, that knowing when to stop um, really is stepping back and being like, I'm not going to to, this isn't something to manage. This is something to listen to and to mm-hmm. convene with. Um, so I love that you you shared that um, aspect of your relationship with him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, managing, you know, politics supposes livestock, you know, it's through livestock, 
livestock management of others is how we prove our humanity. And so the project is also a way to think about how do we get away from that? Not only with non-human animals, but with other humans. That's why the subtitle is consideration of animal life. There's an ambiguity there. Which life am I considering? And this might be a good moment um, to talk about the hum animal or hum animal um, mm -hmm. and your use. It's something that I've seen, but not in the way that you use it with the colon in between. So like H-U-M colon animal. Um, mm -hmm. So can you talk about, I know thresholds come up in the text as well. Can you talk about like the function of that colon? Because it's something that recurs in the structure of the text as well with each section where you have one word and then another, one concept and another, but they're uh, linked with this colon. Yeah. Um, you know, I came, I, if, when I first started doing this work, you know, it was hum slash animal. That's mm -hmm. how I was representing, you know, which is basically, and I say hum instead of hume, you know, um, for the sounding, mm -hmm. you know, that creates the relationship. But when I guess when I'm thinking of H-U-M slash animal, it really should be hume animal, right? Because we're still in that old logic, right? Mm -hmm. Of the man, right? Um, but I'm taking the, the colon materialized in this project at a certain point. And I want to give a nod and a shout out to Terry Pickens's work um, in my blackness, um, who also uses the colon to great effect um, to think about both relationship and um um, porosity, right? And so it's it's hum, space, colon, space, animal. And what I wanted to do is capture, you know, ever the literary scholar, ever the English professor, I wanted to use punctuation to capture the possibilities of relation, both the possibility that we can see, right? Because if I had, if it was hum, if it was hum, colon animal, then I would always already be dictating that relationship. But by creating space, you know, in that transaction, um, and sometimes it is a transaction, but mostly in, you know, I move it, I think, from being a transaction to relation mm -hmm. and also being okay with the unknown, um, being okay Um yeah, I think that's important, being okay with the unknown. The book isn't trying to necessarily make an argument. The mm -hmm. book is trying to open up a space. You know, one is trying to redo and reclaim certain histories, right, of Black presence in, you know, the making of our understandings of non-human animal life. And it's in following the lead of Charles Burnett and Move and and Move organization and other women who are equestrian, you know, equestrians. Um, yeah, um, something else I think happens in the book. And you know, like I say in the beginning, I did a lot of field work. Mm -hmm. you came back to North Carolina to participate in a centuries-old tradition of black riding. And I. I love that like field work, not just like sitting at your desk, reading and writing, but actually physically being out there in the space. And since you mentioned, um, so you're based in North Carolina and my understanding is that your family has lived there for many generations. Yes, you're nodding your head. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes, yes we have. I mean, more than I, more than I had first realized and I can tell you a little bit about that story. Yeah, please do. And I think, you know, with that, there is this, you know, why being an equestrian is so important to you. And as you write, like thinking about the America's quote unquote sport of horse racing, we think of that as being like a very white space with Seabiscuit and, you know, all the, the different, you know, adaptations and histories of that. But it really began with African descended people on the backs of horses. Um, so yeah, your your family history and maybe even as a dovetail, the history of um, a, you know being an equestrian in America. Yes, um, you know the most I've always when I you know I mean I decided to come back to North Carolina um, one day on a very cold platform um, uh, train platform in Chicago, um, probably in two thousand six two thousand seven. 
I was like, I just, I just, I was freezing. The train was late. And I just said to myself, I want to go home. I just want to go home. And I've always told my students that, you know, my family's probably, you know, four generations, North Carolina, you know. Um, but actually, you know, at the close of this project, you know, somebody contacted me um, who is a, is a relative, contacted me on my university email and said, I think we're related. I think we're cousins. Um, and I would love to talk to you. And turns out I had a relative who died in Lewisburg in North Carolina in 1881 at 105, which puts them at the Revolutionary War. And there's a certificate of marriage, I think between an enslaved um, person and um, a freed person from 1770 all in North Carolina, which wow. means that there's a possibility that when that first race was run in North Carolina, one of the first races sometime during between 1753 and 1773, my people might've gone or been around or remembered it or lived it or carried it forward. And, you know, yes, I think that so many people considered my writing, you know, the pursuit of, you know, kind of white endeavors. Um, but I think one of the things that changed those histories, um, not only Little Nas X's song, but all the black equestrians during Black Lives Matter, you know, during the pandemic, who just sh showed up, especially in Houston, you know, in Louisiana, and people were, you know, everyone was like DMing me. My DMs were getting filled, like, Sharon, Sharon, look, look. And I'm like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a tradition, y'all. It's something that we do. Um, and so I don't, and one of the, one, you know, when I think about that, that early race in North Carolina, you know, one of the horses was a chestnut mare and, you know, Annie is a chestnut mare. So I've been born and bred in North Carolina. So, you know, I guess my work, my field work was also a way to find my family um, in many ways, reconnect. Um my field work was also spiritual, right? Mm -hmm. And I also feel like, you know, a horse called me back. Mm -hmm. Before I found out about my human family, I was trying to reconnect to my non-human family in North mm -hmm. Carolina. So I find that kind of eerie and interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that, that's that space between the colon that you were exactly. talking about. Exactly. Like what, you know, that that's the space for the whisper, the space for that unknown family history to come mm. in. That's that's amazing that even in just a recent period, you've heard I from know. another relative. I know. And they had a reunion in Raleigh and I wasn't able to go um, um, because of events on our campus, you know, the shooting of a professor on our campus earlier in the week. And um, and I, I just was, you know, I need to be home, but, um, I'm going to go next year. They're going to be gathering in New York. It's the greens. Um, and really proud, you know, my grandmother was a formidable force in my life and, you know, she was a, she was a green girl through wow. and through. Hopefully mm -hmm. there'll be lots of hugs and, um, good food. I think we'll talk about food. <laughs> yes. I, I, yes. Wanna, I, I don't want to jump too far. Well, I mean, in the spirit of your book, where it's kind of like nose to the ground and one curiosity exactly. and one moment leads to another, let's talk a little bit about this space. And I was just reading your bio. Um, it's QTIPOC. So I'm, I'm assuming that stands for queer trans indigenous people of color, um, forever home. And so is this something that's an extension of like the farm where you live or, and it seems like your attention is really now, I mean, you're doing all the things you're doing like everything all the time, it seems like, but food justice project dedicated yes. to moving the work of QTIPOC chefs, cooks and culinary artists into communities that need them. So can you tell us more about like how food factors into all of this? Yeah, um, well, we're really trying to do what April McGregor um, in um, Philly has started to do um, in the People's Kitchen. But um, basically, the work that I do, you know, in Cutie Pock, in the Cutie Pock world, and the you know, queer, indigenous, um, people of color world, really started, you know, as someone who survived the HIV/AIDS pandemic. Um, you know, I was in my twenties when that pandemic hit, and it was. It was and still feels devastating. And, you know, I made a, you know, I was a graduate student. I was, you know, as they say, poor as a church mouse. Um, didn't have much to offer in the way of money. Didn't have much to offer in the way of cultural capital to move any money. 
but you know, people left food and money under the mat in my at my house and I got it to people who needed it. And somehow we patched together, you know, hospital visits for folks and, you know, getting people the care that they needed. And it was just a hard time. And I thought to myself, if ever I am in a different position and there's a pandemic, I'm I'm gonna do something. So when the when the COVID pandemic hit, I went and I knew the a local activist in Carbo named Tiz Giordano. It's a grocery store. It was a is a former now grocery store worker, but worked at the local um, co-op. And I had just gotten this book, this award from the University for Teaching. And so I went, and it seems like a long story, but it, it's kind of relevant because I went into the food, into the market. Of course, I would meet an activist at the local co-op, right? Um, and I said, I just got a check for $5,000. Like people are going to lose their everything. Like, look, do you know what I can do? Can we do something? And, you know, and it's, you know, only fools rush in is all I have to say. Right. I wasn't really thinking about the tax implications or anything, but I did do what I thought was best. And I started an association. It was called the cutie pop for um, cutie pop survival fund. And over the period of three years, I'm really proud. My Tiz and I, and, um, um, Omni, who is uh, someone else we also work with, fundled, uh, fun fundled, fun, funneled, <laughs> um, funneled over two hundred thousand dollars to Cutie Pock folks locally and in the state. And I am still in touch with a lot of our recipients. Um, one is pursuing an MA in England. Um, another is in Seattle, found a job they love. Another one is in DC and, um, we help people survive and they helped me survive because mm -hmm. we, we formed a community together. The big thing about our fund was it was low barrier. And what that meant is that you didn't have to have an application. All you had to do is get in a video chat with us. We suss you out. You know, we talk to people in community a lot. You know, it's a small town. We all, it's a small area. We all know each other. That work was so rewarding has brought me um, totally solid and long lasting friendships. And so at the same time, as you know, I do food studies work. I'm a very committed um, home cook. I host dinners. I do this big Thanksgiving extravaganza that goes on for literally, okay, I just started planning yesterday. And we oh don't my call goodness. It, you, know, and I, you know, and caveat here, we don't call it Thanksgiving. We call it, you know, um, giving day mm. um, and, you know, recognition of our, um, the indigenous roots of the place in which, you know, I um, um, gain sustenance. And um, so we get together and we have the most amazing time sourcing ingredients. And one of the folks who's in this community with me during the pandemic, who fed me during the pandemic, is someone that I helped to tried to help establish and really have uh, food studies in the triangle, Kelly Alexander. Um, you know, colleague and and very good friend. You know, we would people would just leave things in folks' mailboxes for one another, saying, "Try this," or "I made this really bad bread. It's not so disastrous in the middle." But tell me what you think about the crumb of this cake. And so we decided that we wanted to have not necessarily a land project because land projects are always tricky, right? But we did want to have a place where we could, you know, this is part of Kelly Alexander's project. She has a forthcoming book from UNC Press. Um, you know, dealing with kitchen waste and sustainability and, um, you know, food that's not eaten at the farmer's market. What can we do with this food to get it out to folks who need it? And so we want, we've decided instead of doing the big land project, although that's still part of our goal, because what we want to do is we bring activists and elders together in a space so that they, you know, they could activists could learn from the wisdom of elders and we could be a self-sustaining community with animal life and human life. But we also want, we just really want to start a kitchen mm -hmm. where we start canning and fermenting and putting food in jars and delivering it to people. And so that, that endeavors in um, Cutie Pock Forever Home is called the cauldron, ancestral food for the people. 
I love that. I love all the resonances of the cauldron too. It's yes. Like it's it's yes. mysterious. It's you know I don't know. I love that so much. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's that cutie pock thing. You know the crones, right? I looked up crone the other day just for fun because I'm I'm dyslexic, so I have to look up how to spell things. And it said an ugly old woman, and That's I was perfect. just wow, <laughs> wow, like why hasn't somebody like fixed that? Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. You know? Oh, awesome witches. <laughs> I know. I know exactly. Witches have been around in English literature for a long time. <laughs> They're quite fabulous. <laughs> and I think to, when you were talking about this movement that you're participating in and, and your story about, you know, pandemic, death, great crisis, but also nourishment and life, it really made me think about your discussion in the text about the MOVE organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love, it, it was in that interview, I think it was with Jennifer Nash from a few years ago, and the way that you both, I forgot which one of you together, it was like, life has a single referent. Mm-hmm. And that made me really stop. And I, the MOVE section was I mean, all the sections were wonderful, but I really learned so much that I did not know about them. And I think for our listeners, maybe it's it's an unknown thing that before PETA, like a full decade before even people for the ethical treatment of animals, there was the MOVE organization um, who were not just an animal rights group. They were like a life liberation group. And so- Total liberation. Total liberation. Total liberation, yep. Would you like to say something about like how, you know, your research for the MOVE organization, there's a lot of great photos that you include in the book as well that has the dogs and children and adults, you know, living in these communities. Um, And yeah, just like why the MOVE organization features in this conversation for you. Thank you so much. I mean, um, I I have to give Michael Hames Garcia credit. I was reading, the introduction to his book and he just mentioned that um you know i knew about move um everyone knew, knew about the may 1985 bombing you know of osage avenue by the mayor and the city of philadelphia and he said you know move was an animal rights or animal liberation organization i can't remember the exact quote um so apologies but um and i was just like hmm I didn't know that about them. And so what I did in the book is, um, I mean, there's all kinds of things you can say about what what move became, right? Um, in the Osage Avenue iteration, et cetera. But I was very much interested, and I'm very much, you know, very much interested in their genesis. What did they come out of? What did they believe in? How what did they, whom did they advocate for and why? And so my focus in the archive in particular was, was, was almost exclusively, although I, you know, borrowed from, obviously quoted from a lot of the interviews in the um, commission's papers, right? Um, The PSIC, um, the Philadelphia Special Investigation Committee, um, um, commission, sorry. And then, so I, I looked actually in the Powelton Village papers, you know, like any iteration of move before 1978. And, you know, basically one of the move members says in an interview, you know, move is about life. Life is a single referent, which is like not to say that there's a hierarchy. Right. Um, you know, they were famous or infamous, you know, for having you know, not not killing pests in the home for not putting out rat poison um for letting their children go naked naked in the yard with dogs for them you know, for being vegans for natural childbirth um and i guess what i wanted to do is and you know so many books written by them don't talk about their don't use their own voices about what it was they were trying to do there's a beautiful moment in one of the commission interviews um and one of the MOVE members says, in the beginning, MOVE were the happiest bunch of people you would ever want to meet. And the crack in her voice when she says it, um, I think that I, I laughed. I said, I, I bet you five bucks at the library library staff at the Temple University Archives called me the weeping professor. Because, mm. you know, I would just be reading and just weeping, mostly from my little girl self, mm. who, you know, 
would have loved to have known who felt very deeply about species and about other beings. And it would have been such a boon to my spirit to know that Move was thinking in a parallel sense. Um, and so I feel like they are known as a black liberation group, but I want to give them their rightful place as an animal liberation group. And I actually want to contend that PETA was an animal rights group because they were interested in the animal's right not to be abused in laboratory testing, you know, and, but, you know, MOVE did protest at puppy mills, circuses, and zoos, but they also practice a certain kind of living with a certain kind of um, revolutionary liberation, not for everyone. <laughs> you know, I can just see my mother's reaction to move. <laughs> she were still alive, right? Um, she's a very bourgeois subject. Um, yeah, I just, and also I just wanted to say that, you know, regardless of how things end, everything has a beginning, something that's really vital and interesting. And I wanted to return their history to them, to give them their place. They were doing something that moved the discussion of animal life forward, mm -hmm. at least for me. Mm -hmm. No, it was it was very moving, and um, I could, you know, feel the emotion with which your research process was, like in that section, and then looking at the images that you selected, mm. and it made me think about, um, you know, Elizabeth Bennett, Vibrant Matter. Yeah, Jane, 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 sorry, Jane yeah, Bennett, yeah, sorry, okay. yeah, Jane, okay. Jane yeah. Bennett, Vibrant Matter, you know, this is something like it's a cool text and I've enjoyed reading it and it gets cited a lot. But when I was reading this section of um, in, from your text, I was like, this is what that idea really looks like in action. And like, what are the what are the stakes involved with that? Like, what mm -hmm. are the what are the consequences if you really do take seriously this like radical entanglement of mm -hmm. life having a single referent? And um, also going back to your idea of vulnerability, um, you know, in, in different sources that you have, you have when African descended people are made vulnerable forcibly, but you also show moments where vulnerability is chosen. And I think like with the MOVE organization, we see them choosing choosing life and that's a vulnerability. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. They chose to be vulnerable to the species around them that cohabited um, with them. Um, they chose to be vegan. Um, they were, you know, you know, I'm not going to lie, you know, and in many respects, they were a cult. And, mm -hmm. You know, um, I what I want to do is, like I said, I, I'm not interested in in defining them. You know, they were they were so many different things, but I do want to take their central principle and try to respect its articulation. OK, what were they, what did they believe in and how did they feel about those beliefs? And how did they manifest them? And then I find that there's this, this the word life comes up in the Black Arts group from St. Louis, you know, comes up in an, an album created by musicians from that group. I mean, this concept was probably, you know, it was beyond the scope of my book, but I bet I could write in a whole other book on life, mm -hmm. you know, the Black and Black radical and the Black radical tradition. And you know, some of the fault lines of new materialisms and some of the fault lines, you know, that not necessarily is, you know, the fault of new materialisms, but the way in which we study is that we study so discreetly, mm -hmm. you know, this belongs to black thought, you know, and, you know, here's Heidegger and everyone else over here. Um, and here's feminism over in this other place. But if we would borrow indiscriminately with discretion, wasn't our goal, we might find that the we're having all having very similar conversations. And I keep thinking, you know, move attempted to do what Jane Bennett writes about, you know, years, de decades later. It's interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Interesting to me. And of, and of course, like, you know, no one wants to live with roaches, ants, rats, and dogs and cats. No human being is going to actually try to do that. But it is interesting that a group did. And it makes me think of, of your use of um, hot mess, 
like that comes up, I, I think, in the introduction and throughout the text. And it's a very, you know, I'm from Arkansas originally. I now live in Louisiana. That's a very Southern phrase. Like, it's just a hot mess. <laughs> and I think, I know. And, you know, in a more, you know, as you were saying about, like, they were the, the MOVE organization were some of the happiest people, like, quoting that person that you came across in the archive, like, the roaches and the rats, like, in a more positive spirit. Like, that's just, like, the hot mess of them trying something. Exactly. Exactly. The hot mess of being animal mm -hmm. um, um the total total um what's the word um i'm trying to figure out what the re the total rejection of civil society mm -hmm. as the most uncivil act right um i think the biggest thing for me with move was trying to parse um, and the most pleasurable part of the chapter to write was trying to parse their use of the word motherfucker. Mm. You know, I, I didn't really understand it. Um, you know, I, you know, looked at several news clip, you know, news clippings while I was in the archive. There's stuff on the internet. Um, but, you know, what I love about the writing process is, is it, it's how organic it can be. And so I, just, I sat with the archive. I brought it back home. We were literally in lock and, you know, it was COVID, you know, and every day I survived that first two months of COVID by living with move. Mm. Um, and then I just let what they were saying, you know, fall onto the page. And finally, I understood why they pointed at the, the government buildings in Philly and said, those motherfuckers, because mm -hmm. they really are trying to fuck mothers, you know, and that was, you know, that to me is, 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 is some of the equation there with, with their, what happened to move mothers in particular, even most recently with the bones of their children not being returned, right? Um, you know, this, the sense that being a black mother in particular represents a particular problem for civil society. Move was, move has some of the most, um, the way they lived, um, the way they articulated that problem for this society, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, really, you know, they, they were like, you know, let's call, let's call it, let's call them what they are, you know, um, and especially, you know, you know, with Roe v. Wade being rolled back, you know, I can't help but think they were on to something, mm -hmm. you know, nobody really wants us to be mothers in the way we would like to be mothers, mm -hmm. right? This is making me think about um, your discussion of Toni Morrison's A Mercy, and of course, like Florence, mother, mm. and that decision and the text of, you know, Florence doesn't really ever, you know, she's cut off from her mother and holds a lot of questions and resentment towards that decision. But of course, it was done from her mother as an act of, you know, care um, mm. and survival and safety. But again, kind of that like just severing of especially like black mothers cannot have the, the pleasure of mothering often because it's so treacherous and dangerous um, in many ways. Um, and I think while we're at a mercy, um, what would you like to say about that particular section? I mean, it goes in so many different directions. Um, you do a great reading of especially that opening scene with, um, forget his name, Jacob Vark and mm -hmm. the, the raccoon who is injured. And I love, um, I love how you slow that analysis down and really talk about it being, you know, freed for death, possibly, you know, like it's a raccoon that's trapped and he untangled, take us to that moment. Yeah, I'll let you, I'll let yes. you take us there. <laughs> he, he, he frees a raccoon, he frees, quotation marks, a raccoon, and he also um, intercedes in the beating of a horse, right? And all I'm trying to to do is, you know, as Morrison moves to this, you know, people have often talked about that novel as being Morrison's attempt to wrestle with the time before race, right? Or before race, you know, develops a certain coherence. And I just found that, you know, in that space, that space reeks of animal life, of non-human animal life, and of animal life, of human animal life. You know, there's, everybody in that text has a particular smell, right? Um, the text itself is very feral, 
um, in so many ways, you know, the uncurling um, that happens, um, the um, the biting, um, the text is human being um, at its essence, right? And it's usually a certain kind of, um, uh, that body is usually the body that we eschew as human beings, right? Um, what makes us human is that we are not beasts, right? And we can manage them, right? And so really I thought of the, I thought of a mercy on so many different um, levels, but I loved, um, you know, anytime there's a horse in a book, I'm game for reading it, right? Um, and I love how, and I can always tell whether an author has actually done research about like writers or actually talk to someone who writes or if they haven't, like there's some silly things in books and I'm like, that's not, that never happened. <laughs> you know, you know, that person would be on the ground, you know? Um, but I, I was very much interested in also thinking about sovereignty, you know, which is so fraught in, in, in indigenous, indigenous and native study. Um, and I think, by thinking of the sovereign as not separate from the beast, but the beast itself, um, then we have something else to wrangle with, right? We have a, something else that's a little bit more capacious um, that's present um, when we're trying to align understandings of, you know, a time before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it, it was a chapter that I wrote probably when I think about all the other things in the book, it was the first piece that was written. Interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Especially. Isn't that interesting how the first thing you write, you find your way back there, like mm-hmm. through the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been working in indigenous and native study for the bulk of my career. Um, and always, always, wanting to think with indigeneity, you know, and to, to ground my work. Um, so that, that text, you know, and I love it when a very famous writer, um, I love working with writers who are very well known, who have, who create characters that folks are like, mm not really sure what to do with that one mm-hmm. um i'm not sure if i like the characterization and so what i decided to do is that's that's kind of where my mind goes i'm like i'm gonna go to the thorny thing mm-hmm. i'm gonna go to what does this mean that lena has no people mm-hmm. what does this mean for the the beginning what is this erasure what is morrison trying to tell us about this moment mm-hmm. i love that and when i was thinking about you know, often with the context of this channel, it's animal studies, um, and thinking about how blackness in general is always in this weird periphery. And you even talk about, you say like animal discussion and philosophy falls into three categories. And I'm taking this from your text, Mm -hmm. Uh, focus on domesticated animals, two, no mention of the animal, and three, relationship with pets. And so it's interesting how we have this, this field that's really siloed off and and i like your discussion of derrida and in particular with the animal that therefore i am following where it starts with the cat but he never really gets back to that cat which is so interesting because we think like oh of course we know this text right it's the naked cat text but it's like well what happens to that cat and um i like how your text you really lean into that it's a naked cat seeing the naked philosopher seeing the cat seeing him naked yes Yes, and, thank you. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then at that point, all thought ceases because he says, can I be naked before the cat? I'm naked to myself, but can I be naked before the cat? Mm-hmm. And is the cat always already naked to me or to mm-hmm. itself? And so one of the things I think that that book falls into is, you know, I think that's the, that's the, to me, that's the most thoroughgoing um, investigation of the lack of utility of philosophical thought when it comes to understanding others. It just is so much, and I think Merleau-Ponty is right about this. You know, the self, we can't get away from the self-sown perception of the world. It's not the world, it is just a world. It's the one you live in, right? Um, and so, yeah, I feel like Derrida 
I I love his writing. I you know met him at one point. You did. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, I know. I heard you know he gave one of those two hour lectures, and I went up to him. Um, and I was just like, you know, I very much enjoyed your lecture. Um, and you know, he turned toward me and away from folks. And we had this little intimate moment, um, just talking about, um, philosophy, um, to people interested in its fault lines. And it was a short conversation, maybe a minute or two, but, um, I, I enjoy him very much. And I, you know, I used to be this person was like, you know, deconstruction is just ridiculous, mm. you know. Um, but then I began to think about who he was as a person on this planet. You know, someone is coming out of the continent, someone, you know, kind of eschewed by French philosophy. Mm-hmm. In the beginning. Um, someone who then adopted some of its masculinist postures, which he talks about, you know. Um, but I, I like I like thinking with him. I like thinking with him and I find his work on animal study generative. And I keep wondering what if philosophy were to make that bridge into what if Dick Gregory and move and um, Charles Burnett were available to folks in animal studies from the beginning. Mm. And for those who talk about animal study, especially talking about PETA Mm -hmm. or other things, what would they write? Mm -hmm. You know, but it's like, it's not, I feel like you have to do, Toni Morrison's right. You have to do a lot of work to absent Africanist presence mm-hmm. in your work. And if it's not there, then you know that you're doing the work to make sure it's closed off. So what I try to do is bring a whole host of folks in conversation with Blackness and Black study. And I love that, you know, even something so simple as like Dada is, he was born and raised in Morocco. But we think oftentimes if you go to Wikipedia or whatever, like famous French philosopher (laughs) and, you know, and kind of thinking in general about what these erasures that we're seeing, not just in animal studies as a field, but like this, this siloing of not going to Charles Burnett's films, not going, you know, bringing, bringing Burnett and Morrison together. And I think that's what, you know, you, you said that this book really lacks like a specific argument, but I, I don't know. I really loved reading it as like a syllabus in a way. Like I felt like I was taking a course from you um, where it would like, I'd read a section, I'd pause, I go to the Criterion Collection and watch The Horse. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. It's so beautiful. <laughs> film. It's like every time I see that film, I just weep, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah and it's, you know, also, I want to get away from representation that is always, or the book tries to do one thing. It argues for constantly moving away from centering the human. You know, whenever I get close, I try to say, well, what's the other line of sight here? And I think um, something that I'm actually getting ready to write about, um, I wish it had come out, but Isaac Julian has this amazing exhibit, had um, a, not a necessary exhibit, but a film, right? That was presented at the at the VMFA, Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. And um, I'm, I'm embarrassed because I don't have the title here uh, with me, um, but it's a film about Frederick Douglass's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a moment of him as an orator and, you know, a moment of his wife weaving, you know, all these different scenes on, I think, three or four screens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the room is dark. There's two benches and these screens are huge. And they're, you know, so you have to pan from one to another. And each one has something different on it. And sometimes they align. And at the end, there's a picture of Douglas, I think, in Ireland or Scotland. Um and like myself, he was, you know, Scotch-Irish descent. And, you know, I got tons of Irish on both sides of my family. Um, that's where I get my name from. <laughs> and um, he's standing on a, he's on a horse. And then you see him looking, you know, standing on a promontory or something, looking out. Then you see the horse standing in the horse's eye. And then you see his eye. You see the horse's eye. And then the film ends. And so, you know, I love that vision that Julianne um, depicts there that, you know, 
the vision, the, the meditation on freedom ends with the eye of, of, of the non-human animal and the eye of the human mm-hmm. in sync with one another, looking off at a distant, you know, sometimes together, sometimes apart. I, I love that moment. And to me, like I saw that and I was just like, that's my book's argument. Mm-hmm. And there's one moment where I look at um, the known world where I talk about the only open, one of the only openly gay or LGBTQ characters in the text and, you know, how his vision is skewed by a dog's vision. Mm-hmm. He begins to wonder what the dog is looking at and then his life changes because of that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I'm interested in the text too, like seeing those moments or, you know, like the horse, the horse hell's mouth. You know, standing, looking at the barn ablaze, you know, sport of kings. Um, what is, and, and you know, that phrase from Derrida, right? So what if the animal responded? Mm-hmm. Or what if the animal responded? And it's, so the text tries to meditate on that. And it seems to kind of go back to full circle where we began this this discussion with you reading about Petey. You know, Petey responded and you listened in a way. Was that in a way, right? Like (laughs) you were writing and there was this uh, conversation. I think you said somewhere else, maybe in a podcast that you did about uh, dogs or it's a, what was the name of that podcast? It's a dog themed. Oh, uh, a dog save the people. I love it. Dog save the people. Cause you also have dogs and they're awesome. Um, But like really training is really learning to communicate. It's really training for us as people Mm -hmm. when it comes to animals. I think you said something to that effect. Um, so yeah, my trainers, Mickey Purcell is like, you know, she's amazing. And, you know, she's just like, you know, we always talk about, well, why don't you, if you stop doing that, mm-hmm. it will get better. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not the horse's fault. It's like, you know, the horse really requires us to let go of that tension, to leave this human life behind and settle for another for creating another world every time. I love that. And that kind of takes us back to to another text by Derrida. It's like, you know, with every, when something dies, the whole world ends. Like there's mm-hmm. another text by him. And I think this idea of like worlding, you know, that's a phrase that a lot of times in scholarship, like it's come up a lot and I sort of look over, but I, I love that your text has made me come back to really like those eyes, those worlds, you know, mm-hmm. the horse's eyes, the human's eyes. Um, yeah, I think Derek, I was talking about that French thing, phrase, right, or idiomatic phrase about when someone dies, a library goes with them. Mm-hmm. And also that thing about, you know, you die twice, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know, once obviously to yourself, but the other in your community, you know, there's two deaths to reckon with. So, yeah. Um, as we as we kind of start moving towards the close, I do just wonder, like, uh what are some ways that you would be excited to see this book being used um, in in the many different fields and the way that they intersect in your work, like American studies, film studies, animal studies? Because of course, for me, like I said earlier, this really provides a model of bringing all of these things together. Um, And you've been teaching for many years. What would be some exciting ways that you would love to see this text used? Gosh, that's such a great question. Um, I would like... um... Gosh, I would, I, you know, I wrote this book to challenge us to think differently about Black study. Um, I would love to see it being taken up in Black study. Um, I think the question that opens, the, f- the first chapter opens up with uh, 12 years of slave is an important question. The, the, the leftover questions about slavery or ethical ones. Um, and in many ways, you know, Afro-pessimism begins, at least in Wilderson's work, with one of the most fundamental phrases there in the beginning, which just rocks me every time I, I utter it or every time I go back to the book to, to teach portions of it. And he says, what kind of a world responds to an ethical question with violence? And, you know, I feel like that 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 sentence really gripped me 
And I began, and that's part of the reason also why I knew that the vocabulary is a vulnerability only instantiated violence, right? By, you know, adhering to its repertoire. And I wanted to create another vocabulary, right? Um, I would love for folks in, you know, in feminist study to take the questions about gender and motherhood in particular seriously in the book and take them up. Um, you know, at one point I asked, you know, who were Moose children or who were Moose children? Who are Moose children? Right. Um, that we don't know how many dogs were killed or, you know, in that house dogs or rats or roaches were killed in the bombing of that house. Right. Um, but, um, we know at least one was the one on the porch. Right. And Osage Avenue, that's in the picture. Um, I would love for folks, you know, I think you're right. It's like a little syllabus or like kind of like the anti-animal studies, you know, or how to think about animal study very differently. Um, how to take some of its core texts and massage them for other kinds of work. Um, how to take Black contributions to animal study seriously. Right. Um, and I always say every time I give the talk, I say, but the one thing I want is to really have people to stop giving PETA all the credit mm -hmm. for our discussion about animal liberation forward. You know, not that I'm against PETA in any way, shape or form. I just feel that, you know, white movements always get, especially ecological ones, always get all the credit mm -hmm. for making our relationship to the natural, to the natural world. Um Dick Gregory is considered elsewhere outside the the confines of this nation as one of the fathers of, um, you know, and veganism. Yeah. When you look internationally, everyone knows who he is. You know, we don't even know about very much about him. When I go to my classes, they're like, who? And I'm like, he was an Olympian, a comedian. You know, he's an amazing person, amazing person. And his family, you know, still is around and in um, DC and I really wanted to, one of the things that COVID pre prevented was me going to um, look at through the, the archive that his mm -hmm. son has of his papers. Cause that was going to be, and the other one thing I wanted to do is I wanted to go to, um, 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 gosh, I'm forgetting her name right now, but I wanted to go to uh, Vicki Hearns, Vicki Hearns archive at the Beinecke. She was a professor at Yale, died very young, but I'm still going to do those things. You know, maybe there'll be a follow-up 2.0, but how I, do I want it to be used? I, I want people to expand their syllabus in black study, expand their syllabus in feminist study, expand their syllabus in animal study. Mm -hmm. So, okay, listeners, that means get this right now. It just came out this August. Uh, it'll give you so much to enjoy for many, many months and years ahead. Um, whether you're teaching or just interested in these topics, um, I absolutely encourage you to do that. Um, so, Professor Holland, wrapping up, uh, what are you, I mean, I think you're always thinking about a million different things, but what are you currently really excited by and, and pursuing in your research? Yes. Um, right now, um, I'm working with an agent on a book that is part recipes, part memoir, part um, food studies, um, a chronicle of my life, my life with food, which you can see on my blog. To some extent, some of those pieces are going to be in the book, but I'm really excited about that. I finally get to really just in my joy um, and think about food. Um, and it's kind of in the style of MFK Fisher, one of the prominent food writers of the 20th century. I also am working on the, I'm really working seriously on the cauldron, you know, mm -hmm. with board members, um, Kelly Alexander um, and, and others um, in town to try to get you know, secure a space, get a grant, secure a space and start doing the work that we want to do um, to prevent restaurant waste, food waste, and to put food in the hands of people who need it. And then the other one is an art project. I'm an avid collector. 
I have been for some time. I'm very much interested in outsider art. I have um, Bernie Herman, my colleague at UNC, to thank for that. I've written a couple of articles about some outsider artists, artists um, Lonnie Holly, um, um, Ronald Lockett, uh, Purvis Young, among others, Samuel Doyle. And um, yeah, just interested in doing this outsider art project with um, the archive of, of someone whose sister now lives in Richmond. And I'm gonna be in touch with them about that archive, but looking at sexuality very differently through kind of, um, you know, black outsider art, looking at a local artist, Greta Boney and her work. I love that. So already just like, just like this book where you're bringing together film, literature, movements, you know, your research is still very much continuing that. Um, would you call it peripatetic? Is that the Parap- Yeah, peripatetic. Like I, you know, I, you know, as someone, I guess, you know, who's, who's, you know, come out as, you know, obviously I'm neurodivergent. They're <laughs> just in some of the ways in which I understand the social, right. Um, and so I also like, just, I, you know, maybe, you know, would have been diagnosed with ADHD probably when I, if I, when I was a kid, I know I was hyperactive as a kid, um, but just don't want to be bored. So I always have two or three projects going so that, you know, if one project stalls, then another project is there. I'm always writing two or three things at the same time. And I'm very, I'm not necessarily disorganized. I wouldn't say that. I'm just not um, a disciplined. I don't understand, you know, I guess maybe the animal studies work fits me because I don't like disciplinary forms. Mm-hmm. I don't like joining groups. I'm kind of like almost like pathologically like, oh, there's six people in that. I'm not, I'm not going to do that, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, I just... I, I like to, I like independence of mind and I, I want my projects to, to, to do that. And I feel like I try to make them as capacious as possible to keep that independence. So allegiances don't form. Mm-hmm. That's why I said, I'm not really making an argument, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't deny that there's a very strong argument present, mm-hmm. not making an argument. The blog you mentioned is theprofessorstable.org because I heard you mention that. So we'll definitely be checking that out and just staying, um, you know, keeping on the lookout for all that's ahead and and your awesome work with the cauldron. Thank you so much, Professor Holland, for spending this time with us. Oh, thank you so much, Callie. It's been a pleasure.